0: Okay, uh just want to go back through this before I start the uh, sermon. So, in our scripture readings today, we started off with a call to sing praises of God and worship God through song. And then we saw in our Old Testament reading how particularly fathers are to bring up their children, the training and the nurture of the Lord. And we had our sanctity of life reading because this is Sanctity of Life Sunday then we saw Jesus modeling what it means to be an obedient child, a child that uh, is acting in a way, living in a way that's pleasing to God. The reason for all of that is because that's what we're going to talk about today. So um, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be covering a very large portion of Scripture today. Uh, We're going to be looking at all of chapter 5 and the first nine verses of chapter 6, because frankly, I think that's how it should have been Uh, divided up anyway. I don't really understand the chapter break where where it's at. Uh, But anyway, we're going to cover it like that's just one chapter. Um, Where we left off, Paul was instructing the Ephesians, particularly the Gentiles among them, that they were to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Uh, that they were to forsake their former manner of life when they were hard-hearted and ignorant and alienated from the life of God. Paul then gives practical examples for how those in, in whom the image of God has been restored are to live in true righteousness and holiness. We are to be honest with each other, not enslaved to anger so that we give no place to the devil No longer stealing, but working to provide not only for ourselves, but for those in need also. And speaking only those things which build up our brothers, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So with that as the context, Paul writes this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your word. We're thankful that you've blessed us with uh, the ability to have your word in our language where we can read it and understand it. Help us to not take that most precious gift for granted. Help us to study this so that we would know what your will is for us as individuals and for us corporately as your church, as your people. And then help us to carry it out. Help us to be comforted by it, to be convicted by it. And Lord, I pray now that you would help me to rightly exposit your word. I pray, Lord, that you would guard all of our hearts from error, that you would guide us by your spirit into your truth. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the time when Paul was writing, there was uh, more to the idea of being the son of a father than mere biology. Uh, a son was made to be like his father. He was to be made in his likeness or his image. Um, he was to imitate him. Uh, this was the assumption that runs throughout the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees as recorded in John 8. Uh, There was a back and forth. I'm not going to go read that, but just to summarize, there was a back and forth where Jesus said, If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's like his father, right? And the Pharisees claimed that Abraham was their father. So Jesus then replied, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. So then they upped the ante by saying that they're the sons of God now. And Jesus replied, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. And then he plainly tells them, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And then he would go on to explain how they were murderers and liars like their father the devil. But the assumption throughout that entire conversation was a son will be like his father. Okay? Jesus is the son of God. He's like his father. The Pharisees were the sons of the devil, and they were like their father, you see. So Paul is assuming... The same thing here when he writes, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So the idea is uh, that as sons of God, we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, uh, like we talked about last week. Just as the image imitates what the imager does, so it is that beloved children, the beloved children of God, his likenesses or images imitate what he, our father, does. What does our father do? He loves. In fact, this text itself describes those imitating him as being beloved by him. Scripture says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And that's not just a intellectual knowledge. That's an intimate knowing. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And again, the scriptures say, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Literally, the verse prior to this one reminds us that we should imitate God by forgiving each other because God in Christ has forgiven us. God is holy. He is just. And he is kind and merciful and gracious and forgiving. And he is loving. And since we are the beloved children of God the Father, we must walk in love the this- thing that keeps popping up in Ephesians. Walk this way. Walk this way. Don't walk this way. Walk this way. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Those who are born of the God who is love must walk in love. must be our way of life. Again, this is not a mere feeling or sentiment. It is not you do this for me and I'll do that for you. It's not, I do something for you because I have selfish gain to be made by doing that. No, the Greek word is agape, which is defined by Greek scholars as the highest form of love, charity. It is a sacrificial love, which often proves itself through action. This is clearly seen as Paul Explains that the love in which we must walk is the same kind of love with which Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Those who love Christ should be willing to sacrifice themselves in love for his body, the church. Elsewhere, scripture says, By this we know love, that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is, what we have to offer, we freely give sacrificially, expecting nothing for ourselves in return. We just do it because we love God and we love those bearing his image. If it glorifies God, that's enough for us. Such love and sacrifice are a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, the foremost of such being the sacrifice offered by Christ on our behalf. Now, while we're not able to offer that ultimate kind of sacrifice, only Jesus can do that. We are called to imitate Christ insofar that we're able to. While we're not able to atone for sins like Jesus, ours or anyone else's, we can lay down our lives for our brothers. We can give our time. We can give our resources. God forbid that the situation would arise, but I mean, it could even come where you actually literally die for a brother. Again, God forbid. I hope that that never happens, but it could. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Saints, the ones set apart for God. That's who a saint is. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. These things are not proper or fitting among the saints who sacrificially love because they're the opposite of sacrificial love. They are examples of lustful self-indulgence. There is disagreement among Bible commentators I've come to learn uh, about how we should consider this list of egregious self-serving sins. Some view it as three distinct sins. The first of a sexual nature. The second of anything at all that might be considered impure. And then the last being the idolizing of other people's possessions. And I think that's a legitimate way of interpreting it. I'm not, you know, just really hardcore going to put my flag here and say this is the right way to do it. But I think I actually do agree with Bible commentator Adam Clark, who holds these things are different kinds of the same category of sin. The term translated in the ESV as sexual immorality, I think, is better translated in the King James as fornication, okay? The idea is of sex outside of the marital covenant in that first one, okay? Impurity may refer to unnatural relations such as homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, so on and so forth like that. And then the covetousness referred to here may be particularly in terms of coveting Unlawful sexual gratification, and the foremost in my mind being adultery, coveting another person's spouse. Clark states this quote: "As the covetous man never has enough of wealth, so the pleasure taker and the libertine never have enough of the gratifications of sense. The appetite increasing in proportion to its indulgence." In quote, I think he's right. I think that's the, I think that's what Paul was trying to get out. Paul says such things should not be so much as named, much less practiced among saints. Shouldn't even come up. The prohibition of naming them would then extend to filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. These are out of place. Why? Because those walking in love are thankful for God's gifts. Which includes the physical expression of marital love through sex. That is God's gift to husband and wife. They do not make dirty jokes out of God's gift. They do not pervert God's gift by their actions either. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. That is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, the sons of wrath have no inheritance with the sons of God. They have their father and the inheritance that comes with being sons of their father, and we have our father and the inheritance that comes with that. We don't inherit theirs if they don't inherit ours. This is not saying, though, this is not saying that if we fall into sin once, or even for a period of time, maybe, that it's necessarily the case that we're not the children of God. We're still in a fight, right? We still have a war between the new man and the old. Okay, we, We're not teaching, I don't think the Bible teaches, uh, that we are perfected on this side of eternity. Okay, so I'm not saying that if you fall or even fall in this way, necessarily you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. However, a child of God will not long be able to consciously live contrary to the Father he loves. Eventually, you are going to come out of that sin if you really belong to him. Why? Because it's against your new nature. You can't act. Contrary to your new nature, indefinitely, eventually he will not be able to help himself. He must repent and once again act in accordance with his new nature, rightly imitating and imaging God the Father. However, those who make a lifestyle of these things, this is their God. They're idolaters. That's what the scripture said. Those who make a lifestyle of these things, those walking in it, to use the terminology we've seen so much in Ephesians, these will inherit God's wrath instead of his kingdom. Such people are those who remain alienated from the life of God, dead in trespasses and sins. We, much like the Ephesians, live in an unregenerate culture where these things are common, these things are more common than not. Now, it is the world out of which God has saved us. In Corinthian, in, in the letter, first letter to the Corinthians, he says, "Such were some of you." I'm willing to bet that's true here too. Such were some of us. <clears throat> Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Since it was our former manner of life, since it is an ongoing war within, between the old man and the new man, the flesh and the spirit, we need to be careful what manner of people to whom we yoke ourselves. My grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, once explained the principle to me in this way when I was much younger. And it stuck with me ever since he did it. He used this analogy. He said uh, something to the effect of this. When you pick up a piece of chalk and roll it around in your hand, eventually you get chalk all over your hand. Okay? Likewise, the type of people with whom you roll around will eventually rub off on you. You'll be like them. Now, this does not mean we should be snobs who never talk to anyone who has not confessed Jesus as Lord. That's not what, that's not the point. What it means is that we are not to yoke ourselves together with them, to use a Pauline example. We have different manners of walking. Okay? If you yoke two oxen together and then try to walk, and then the two oxen try to walk in different ways, okay? You're not going to get much accomplished. Um, And in fact, you're probably going to have a big mess on your hands. It's not not going to work. The way the Holy Spirit, through Paul, explains it, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? It's appropriate for us. It's very appropriate for the Ephesians because, remember, they had a very famous pagan temple in Ephesus. Right? That, that was, that's actually what Ephesus was known for, the temple of Diana. The temple of God has nothing to do with the temple of idols. Likewise, the people of God have nothing to do with idolaters. Just as we were once, darkness went apart from Christ. Now we are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Those who are as we learned last week, renewed in the spirit of their minds and have put on the new man, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, these will bear the necessary fruit produced by such a mind and such a nature. We act in accordance with our nature. The true and righteous nature produces a true and righteous mind, which in turn produces true and righteous fruit. It discerns what is pleasing to the Lord, and then it does it. It doesn't just discern it, it does it. Therefore, we will take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what light does, isn't it? It helps us to see things and see them for what they really are. So children of light walk in such a way as to produce fruit that is good, righteous, and true, while exposing the darkness and its fruit, which is bad, evil, and false. To give you three examples, again, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. As children of light, we expose the evil of abortion. It's not women's health care. It's murder. We call it what it is. It's murder. But we also live in a way that is consistent with life. It's not simply, don't do that. It's also, do this. If we're just pointing at them, telling them, oh, you're horrible, but we're not trying to do anything to actually promote life, what are we doing? Another good example. We expose all forms of idolatry for the evil that they are, but we also actively worship the true and living God. Not just don't do this, but also do that. And a final example, and the one I think Paul had in mind here, is that of sexual immorality. Remember, he has not changed the subject from what he started discussing in verse 3. As children of light, we call out all forms of sexual immorality as the evil that they are, but we also practice biblical sexual morality. We do not teach that sex is bad, per se, because it isn't. It's a gift from God when it is used the way God intended. It's the perversion of this gift from God that uh, that we consider to be unfruitful works of darkness, literally. Paul says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. That is... We are able to see it for what it truly is. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's uncertain from where Paul was quoting here. Um, Various places in Isaiah and even places from some apocryphal works have been suggested as his source. Um, Another plausible suggestion, honestly, it's the one that I think is the correct suggestion, uh, Is that he's quoting from an ancient hymn of the church. Which began with these same words. Honestly I think that makes a lot of sense. Given what he's about to launch into next. Uh, Regardless the meaning is the same though. Light exposes the works of darkness. Both those asleep and those who are dead. Are in a sense in darkness. They perform no fruitful works. In fact. They're not even capable of it. John Stott comments, Here our former condition in Adam is graphically described in terms of sleep, death, and darkness, from all of which Christ rescues us. Conversion is nothing less than awakening out of sleep, rising from the dead, and being brought out of darkness into the light of Christ, end quote. Once we are filled with the light of Christ, we become the children of light who begin to walk like it. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Or more accurately, take heed that you walk perfectly or with exactness. That is, since you are children of light, be diligent to live as children of light. You are this, so act like it. Live a life that is consistent with the faith you confess, that is consistent with the new nature that you've been given in Christ. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We have Christ, and we have the mind of Christ, which is wisdom from God. Not only should we endeavor to live morally, we should endeavor to live wisely. God has only given us so much time here on this earth limited is not put us here to waste it binge-watching television shows that we probably shouldn't be watching anyway or football or whatever form of entertainment that you choose to fill in the blank with and that's not to say that it's sinful to watch these things per se i watch shows i watch football i'm not saying that what i'm saying is don't do it in excess okay although maybe some of the shows that we watch maybe they are sinful in and of themselves depending on what's In them. Uh, But anyway, my point is that God has not called us to watch Netflix. Okay? He has called us and gifted us to serve Him, to work for the building up of the church, and to work for the discipling of the nations. We were meant for bigger and better things. So we should endeavor to make a big impact for the kingdom of God with our lives while we have a chance. You don't get a do over with this. That means making the best use of the time and the talents that God has gifted us with because the days are evil. As Albert uh, Albert Barnes, I'll get it out in a minute, comments, quote, there are many allurements and temptations that would lead you away from the proper improvement of time, and that would draw you into sin. Much were those uh, that would tempt them to go to places of sinful indulgence and revelry where their time would be wasted, and worse than wasted. As these temptations abounded, they ought therefore to be more especially on their guard against a sinful and unprofitable waste of time. Since the days are evil, we ought to be all the more diligent to not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This means making a wise use of our focused time and energy, And primarily it means spending regular, frequent time in prayer and scripture reading. How are we ever to discern the will of the Lord if we never hear, read, or consider the word of the Lord? And what are we to do once we perceive his will? Carry it out. This is the will of the Lord, so we do it. Dr. Sam Waldron once described the covenant of works made with Adam as having been designed to, quote, bring Adam to a higher existence than that in which he was created. Is that not exactly what Christ does for those who are born again? Is that not what God does for us in Christ? He brings us to a higher existence in Christ. We have been and are being transformed from rebel sinners to sons of our Father. Renewed images of our Creator, who are created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand by the Father that we should walk in them. So therefore, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So here is yet a third contrast between the world and the church. We are not to overindulge or fill and satisfy our bodies with sensual pleasures as drunken fools, being enslaved by our passions as the world is. Rather, we are to fill and satisfy our souls with the Holy Spirit. The verb to be filled in the Greek is indicative of a present ongoing action. Okay? So the idea is that we are to be constantly filling ourselves with the Holy Spirit as a drunkard constantly fills himself with wine. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, never-ending action. The drunkard is controlled by the wine that fills him and it causes him to lose his self-control. We say that such people are under the influence. Likewise, the man who is filled with the Spirit is controlled by the Spirit that fills him, causing him to live in a wise, self-controlled manner. We are to be under the influence of the Spirit, if you will. How do we fill ourselves with the Spirit, though? I mean, that I think that's a good question because the Holy Spirit is the sovereign one, right? And we know He goes where He wants to go, Right? How do we fill ourselves with the Spirit? Colossians 3, 15 and 16 is a parallel passage to this one. And I think it helps us to answer the question. There we read that we should let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So being filled with the Spirit means not allowing our fears, doubts, or sinful passions to rule us, but rather the peace of Christ given to us through the Spirit of Christ. And it means filling ourselves with the words given by the Spirit of Christ instead of the things of the world. When we do that, the overflow of the filling of the Spirit pours forth from our hearts, the hearts of God's people, in worship. The evidence that we are filled with the Spirit is that when gathering with the saints, we will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. To summarize, God's Spirit-filled people worship Him, particularly through singing. It's important that we sing praises to the Lord. It's always been this way. How many times do we see in the Old Testament where God provides a great deliverance of His people and they respond by singing His praises? Over and over again. Crying out loud, there's an entire book of Psalms for God's people to sing. Many believe that Mary's Magnificat was sang instead of merely spoken. Now, upon the birth of our Lord, the angels sang. And Jesus sang with his disciples, even on the very night of his arrest before his crucifixion. The church is called to sing praises to God and for our mutual encouragement in him. want to do that now. And even in heaven, we read that we will be singing his praises for eternity. That's one of the things we actually know we'll be doing in heaven, is singing. The scriptures command that we sing, but this should not be done as a matter of law-keeping. No, it should be the natural overflowing of the spirit within us. It's our joy. And in fact, it's a manifestation of our joy. I'm going to show you this Catholicity that I was talking about a few weeks ago where we are in solidarity with our brothers and sisters that I think wrongly uh, baptized their children before faith. Pastor Toby Sumter, which is the Presbyterian, uh, but he once wrote this, and I think he was spot on this one. He said, quote, Worship is warfare. We are here for battle. We serve the Lord of hosts. Hosts are armies. We are the armies of King Jesus. Therefore, as we gather this morning, I call upon you to fight with all your might. As we confess our sins, do it heartily as though your confession were for the sake of the world. Because it is. As we sing out our praises to God, sing out at the top of your voice as though these psalms might tear down strongholds and bring injustice to the ground. Because they do. As we declare the goodness of God to one another in our spoken responses, declare it like you are on the battlefield, as though uh, God is giving us this city, this county, this state, because he is. At the close of the hymns and psalms, declare your amen, not with some kind of quiet passiveness. Declare your amen as though the God of heaven took your vow seriously, as though your shouts of affirmation might bring judgments on the earth. Because they do. As you hear the word of God read and declared, listen intently as though your king was giving you your commands, your marching orders, because he is. And as you feast at the table of your commander, do so as the friends of the commander, rejoicing in the fact that as God's people eat their bread and drink their wine with joyful hearts, God judges nations. He brings down kings and raises up beggars. He blesses the righteous and undoes the plans of the wicked. We are at the gate of heaven. We are here for battle. We serve King Jesus who will reign until all his enemies have been made his footstool. Therefore, he cannot fail. And if he cannot fail, then neither can we. So, when it's time to sing, sing and shout the praises of our victorious King. (laughs) The song director agrees (laughs) (laughs) we should sing to god and one another encouraging each other in the lord and giving thanks always for everything to god the father the god in whom we live and move and have our being the god from whom all good gifts come down in the name of our lord jesus christ and then in opposition to the way of the world in which man subjugates man, seeking their own glory, we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, who himself came not to be served, but to serve. Paul does not simply make this statement and then move on. And I'm thankful that he doesn't. He moves now into the practical ways in which we are to submit to, ourselves to one another. And this takes place particularly in our households. Every one of the examples he uses for the proper administration of our lives in the context of our households. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So how are wives to submit to their husbands? They're to submit to them as to the Lord. That means submit in everything so long as he is not leading you to sin against God. He's trying to tell you to sin, don't do it. But otherwise, do it. Why though? Because God has appointed the husband as the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head and savior of the church. Wives should submit to their husbands because, in so doing, they are submitting to the authority of God. But that means, husbands, we are to put into practice what God has called us to be. We are to be the head, the provider, and the protector to our wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is how Christ loves his bride, the church. That's our model the so, way we're supposed to love our wives. So, in the same way, husbands uh, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Take the opposite of that. He who does not love his wife hates himself. Husbands, God made us the head of our wives so that we could follow the example of our Lord laying down our lives for them. He made us their heads so that we might have a sanctifying effect on them. Does the way you treat your wife have a sanctifying effect on her? Or do you make your wife sorry she's a woman? Do you study her, spending time and energy learning what she likes and dislikes? What she needs and what she desires? What makes her feel loved and treasured by you? You work with all that is in you to provide for her physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well being. You pray with her and for her. You read scripture together. Does the way you love her point her to Christ? Do you pursue her the way that Christ does his church? You should. I should. I'm not just point the finger. Me too. Do you pursue those things for yourself? Do you seek to gratify your own needs and desires? Do you daily seek the Lord for yourself through prayer and reading His Word? If so, then why wouldn't you do the same thing for your wife, who, as Scripture says, has become one flesh with you? You're one. For... No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. She's not out here just hanging around whenever you need her. Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Wives, this is the practical reason why you should submit To your husbands, because your husbands have been called to submit in this way to God on your behalf. When you choose to rebel against their God-given authority over you, you do so to your own hurt. And husbands, when you refuse to rightly administer the authority God has given you in your households, you do so to your own hurt. I like the way that Martin Luther put it. He said, Let the wife make the husband glad to come home, and let him make her sorry to see him leave. That's the way it should be. Scripture says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages are meant to be a picture of the gospel and the relationship Christ has to his church. There's been a lot of talk in this book about imaging. Here's another image. Our marriages are to be an image or a picture of the way that Jesus relates to his church. We should be diligent to ensure that this image is as pristine as possible. Let each one of of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Is that not what each of us needs? The woman needs to feel like she's loved and treasured by her husband. A husband needs to feel like he's respected by his wife. If that breaks down, we're going to have some problems in any marriage. Do not treat her as if she is there merely for your own amusement and pleasure. Love her as Christ loves his church. And do not treat him as if he is there simply to carry out your honey-do list. Respect him as the head God has put over you. Or simply put, cherish each other. God has gifted you to each other. You should view it that way. My wife is God's gift to me, and God help her. I'm her gift from Him. And it's that way for all of the marriages. As our confession states, marriage was ordained by God for the mutual help of husband and wife. When rightly done, it is a blessing to both the husband and the wife And it is a pristine picture of Christ and his church. Okay, now. I'm sure at this point we have a lot of kids that have tuned out from anything I'm saying. And I'm talking to you right now, kiddos. So listen, if you don't hear anything else, I'm talking to you right now, kids. Okay? Children, obey your parents and the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So, kiddos, the Lord Jesus Christ would have you to obey your parents, despite that you may think you know better than us at times. Heck, maybe you do know better than us at times. But despite that, he says that your obedience is, to your parents, is right. In fact, he even makes a general promise here that if you, uh, if you will obey your parents and the Lord, that it sets you up for a long and prosperous life. And again, think about the opposite. If you don't, what does that set you up for? If it wasn't for your parents, there would be no you. That in and of itself should cause you to be thankful for and reverent towards your parents. Furthermore, your parents possess wisdom that you need. You may not see it now, but you need it for righteous living. They have lived through things that you have not. They have experienced things that you have not. They have made mistakes and had successes that you have not. We do well to listen and learn from their wisdom and submit to their instruction. In fact, Scripture says that if you do not listen to them, you are a fool. Proverbs fifteen five says this: A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So I want to encourage you, kiddos, listen and obey your parents in the Lord if for no other reason, that this is what is pleasing to him. Okay, now, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here Paul places the primary responsibility for raising children not on the mother. For some reason, that's some sort of cultural thing that has happened in the United States. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened. I haven't studied the issue enough to know. But I do know this. It's wrong. It's not to say mama doesn't bear responsibility. She does. Here, Paul places the primary responsibility on the covenantal head of the household, the father. Fathers, we are responsible before God for taking an active role in the shaping of our children, for discipling, disciplining them in the Lord. There are several wrong ways of raising our kids, and there's only one right way. Now, that right way can practically flesh itself out in various ways from child to child, because each child's different. But the same basic principle stands. We do not raise our children by browbeating them with the law. We certainly want to bring the law of God to bear in their lives, but we should not be constantly discouraging them by using it because our kids, like us, are sinners. In fact, some of their sins may have been learned from us. We need not have an unrealistic expectation that they will be perfect and thereby provoking them to anger. If our children see that we are constantly angry, they are likely to imitate and image that. Remember, a son is like his father. On the other side of the coin, though, we should not be so lax in our parenting that we allow our children to get away with anything and everything. We should confront them with God's law when they sin, but we should finish that confrontation with a call to repentance and faith in Christ. We are raising them up in the discipline of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. Tell them they're sinners. Tell them what God and Christ has done to take care of that. What we are called to do is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We teach them to trust in Christ, to love Christ above all else, and to obey Christ. We repent in front of them too because we want to teach them that, right? And then we pray that the Holy Spirit will use our instruction as a means of making these things a reality in our kids' lives. Now, this final part is not perfectly applicable in our society. It's not, and I'm not about to pretend that it is. Some try to make the application of employers and employees, and I agree that that is probably the closest thing that we have in 21st century America. Probably so. In fact, that's the application I'm going to make in a minute. But I want you to keep in mind, the slaves that Paul is addressing did not have the option to quit their jobs. They really were legally owned by another person with the legal responsibility to do their master's bidding. These were real slaves. And that's why Paul's comment at the end of the passage we're about to look at, which essentially puts slaves and masters as equals, would have been so shocking in that culture. In fact, it was this biblical equality that would bring slavery Crashing down, bring it to an end in the Western world, or at least most of the Western world. Paul instructs, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of thy service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, and not to man, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now, taking this passage and applying it to us who have never experienced slavery, whether from the perspective of slave or free. Most of us do work for employers. We do know that. Okay, We should endeavor to do our jobs to the best of our abilities, not because we lack our bosses. That certainly helps. If you think somebody is supportive of you, it does make you want to do a better job. But that's not the reason we should want to do a good job. The reason we do it is that we want to do honest work with our own hands, as we discussed in the last chapter. And we want to do that for two reasons. First, it glorifies the name of Jesus. We perform our work to the glory of God. We work as if unto the Lord. So when we're doing our jobs, we should do it as if Jesus is our boss. Because he is. And this work is performed in the service of others, whether by producing goods or rendering service. We want to create a culture of people laboring in the service of others unto the glory of God. Our labor is not in vain, but it creates a prosperous and beautiful culture that is glorifying to God. And the second reason is because we know that whatever good that anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. We're not working for nothing. And then, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So, continuing with our modern application business owners, and those with authority within businesses. Do not treat your employees or those placed under your authority harshly. Do not mistreat them. Just as Jesus has loved you, love them. Just as Jesus shows no partiality between masters and slaves, you ought not show partiality in the way you treat, for example, maybe business partners and employees. Just as the employee is to use his labor for the glory of God, the business owner should use his resources for the glory of God also. You should work to build a culture of care and concern for the people under your authority. And again, always, always for the glory of our common master. So in closing, I again urge you as Paul, Walk this way. Walk in love. Love your unregenerate neighbor, functioning as light in their dark lives. Love your brothers and sisters in the church, encouraging them by your worship through singing, giving thanks always to God. Wives, love your husbands by submitting yourselves to them as the church is to submit to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves His church laying down his life for her that he might sanctify her. Children, love your parents and obey them as is only fitting in the Lord. Parents and especially fathers, love your children as your heavenly Father loves you. Those under authority in the workplace, love those set over you and beside you by joyfully working hard to the glory of Christ. Endeavor to build the sort of God-glorifying culture you hope to see. At work. Those with authority in the workplace. Love those set under your authority. Be honest in your business practices. Build the best products. Or render the best services. To the glory of God. These are practical ways. That we fulfill the cultural mandate. And gain opportunities. To fulfill the great commission. May God bless us. To imitate him. In these ways. As his beloved children. Pray. Father, again, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would help us to keep all of these things that we've considered this morning in the forefront of our minds as we live our daily lives, because that's what this is about, how we live our daily lives. Lord, help us to walk in love as you've called us to do. Help us to imitate you, because that's what you've called us to do. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name.